when a hit filmmaker wants to make a Batman movie, but Tim Burton beats him to it? He goes to another studio, gets himself an oversized check, and makes his own damn superhero movie, that's what. Yes, we're talking about Sam Raimi. And no, we're not talking about Spider-Man. Rather, we're talking about a bloody revenge flick that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You're listening to the Anti-Monitor Podcast from DoomRocket.com. And this is Darkman. You're listening to Anti-Monitor from DoomRocket.com. Do it, I'm surrounded by assholes. I'm not even going to dignify myself with a response to that. Well, it looks like it's about that time again. Anti-Monitor time. My name's Matt, Birdman Fleming. And across the table from me, as always, Jared Jones, editor-in-chief of DoomRocket.com and our personal master of disguise. Only in the morning. You've seen that movie, right? Master of Disguise, starring Dana Carvey. Dana Carvey, yeah, yeah. He played a turtle man. Turtle, 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 turtle. And that wasn't a very funny movie, as I recall. That movie I saw in the theater was back when at least I worked at Showcase Cinema. Oh, I worked there, too. And I took my little sister to see it. Uh, and so she, you know, liked it because she was a little kid that didn't know what movies were. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were definitely some moments in that movie where I thought I was going to blow my brains out. Dana Carvey was perfect second banana yep. to Mike Myers in yep. the Wayne's World movies. Uh-huh. And then he made The Master of Disguise. I can't think of what else he's made. Well, he did Trapped in Paradise. Trapped in Paradise. Nicolas Cage. No. Yeah. And John Lovitz. Oh, I forgot yeah. about that. Everyone forgot about that. He uh, was in that movie Opportunity Knocks. Where his last name was Knox, I think. Oh, man. And don't forget his, his uh, piece de resistance, Clean Slate. Clean Slate. That's the one. That's, that's the one I was forgetting mm-hmm. about. So while we're sitting here, uh, you know, it's a week after Thanksgiving or so. Uh, we've just gorged ourselves on some fast food today. Yeah. What else have you had your fill of lately? Uh, Star Wars hype. Star Wars hype, yeah. I'm, I'm not feeling Rogue One. Really? I'm not. 
I rebel. I rebel. Every line of dialogue in these trailers, with the exception of the Forrest Whitaker one, which is Save the Rebellion! Save the Dream! Sounds completely generic to me. Like, I'm, I look at these trailers, and I see, yes, a splendorous panorama of, like, Star Wars imagery. Imagery, and stuff that, like, tickles my feelings, and it's a little darker and grittier, which I guess is... What about people who saw uh, Force Awakens and all that happy nonsense, who are going to take the kids to see a Star Wars movie, and then everything's all angry and angsty and... You know, Jenner, so it's like, Rebellions are built on hope, but first I'm gonna shoot that man in the face. Yeah, I, you know, and I still don't really get the hype over Felicity Jones. Really? Yeah. Academy Award nominee Felicity Jones? Co-star of Ron Howard's Inferno, Felicity Jones. Co-star of Mark Webb's Amazing Spider-Man 2, Felicity Jones. Oh, yeah, no, she, that's like a triple co. Yeah. That's a blink and you missed her. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that movie, I wish I could have blinked and missed it. They really wanted her to be Black Cat. Well, thankfully, someone uh, understood that some superhero franchises just don't need to exist. Exactly. And saying such, we just indulged ourselves in what purported to be the beginning mm -hmm. of what one person and his brothers mm -hmm. hoped would be a brand new, exciting, thrilling superhero for the 90s. They wanted it to be a splash. They wanted it to be a big, big bonanza of explosions, mm -hmm. and Darkman is not. The key word in that is dark. Yeah, but it's also a bonanza, just oh, the yeah. wrong kind. Not like the uh, slap your knee and play the spoons kind of bonanza, but like... Or the steakhouse buffet bonanza. But perhaps take a Xanax and then maybe drive your car on the highway kind of bonanza. Maybe take some acid before you watch this movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, no. that, that would give you some real <laughs> bad trips, If there's course. a movie out there that does not need the added benefit of an altered state to make you feel disoriented, it is this movie. Definitely. God, I love you, darling. Oh, it's good to be back. Oh, it's only Hastings. I'm gonna win for you the biggest, uh, fuzziest, pinkest animal doll in that rack. Yes! And then I gotta run. All right. 1990. Set the scene for uh, us. Thank you, Mr. Bird. Well, there was a time, you'll recall, right after Tim Burton made Batman, that every Hollywood studio was trying to get their eager little hands on a superhero property, not realizing that all they had to do was go, uh, who's that guy standing next to Batman? They reached far back. Oh, to, God, like, they reached the, too far back. The golden age of, of would-be vigilante heroes, the yeah. Shadow, the Phantom, all these other really... Uh, Crappy heroes that don't transfer to cinema well. They reached into what I like to call uh, out of copyright. Yeah, easy to, cheap, cheap to procure and cheap to produce uh, kind of superhero films. We got Dick Tracy uh, the following year. And right around the Dick Tracy time, we got Darkman, which is a really peculiar little piece of superhero cinema that does completely fit in that oeuvre. Oeuvre. Yeah, you know, you get the... This. It does. You got Hudson Hawk, you got sure. a Rocketeer, these kind of like sort of throwbacks to the old-timey stuff, but it's modern at the same time. It's like when they, like when studios wanted to make a superhero film but didn't want to be arsed to pay for the film, uh, royalties to like The Flash or The Green Lantern or realized that they couldn't transfer the 
the G Wiz special effects of comic books over to film, uh, yeah. a la R- Roger Corman's Fantastic Four and everything like that. People knew that they were limited in what they could do. They didn't want to drop all the cash it would take to make a Superman. So it was like, well, just make up our own damn hero. That's where you got your blank men, your meteor men. Later on, you got mystery men. Sure, yeah. All fit in that same vein, and Darkman definitely fits, if, in my opinion, I believe it sits almost atop of that pyramid, because of all of them, none of them are nowhere near as daring as Darkman. That's true. And this all came about because Sam Raimi wanted to make Batman movie. Yeah! There's never been a filmmaker in modern history who has wanted so badly to bring his love of comic books to the screen. Yeah. We got that. Well, we got Kevin Smith later, and that was a mistake. Yeah, well, but with Sam Raimi, he had to iron out some kinks. Uh, A lot of them. You know what I think is interesting, and we could talk about this a little more once we start breaking this uh, sucker down, but like, you look at a movie like uh, Evil Dead 2, which he made before uh, Darkman, and you're looking at the camera angles and the zoom, and I don't know what, what it was, whether it was because he had more control over Evil Dead 2 than, say, Darkman, of course, when you read production notes on Darkman, you see that Universal kind of gave him a wide berth to make this movie. They're like, we love your pitch. We love you, buddy. Why don't you go make the movie and make us rich? You That's know? how I've always thought Universal Studio exists. Oh, yeah. When you look at Darkman and you look at the angles he's using, you can tell that Raimi's trying to like rein it in a little bit, but he, he's got this money to spend, like the most money he's ever had to spend on a movie, and now he's he gets to make a comic book movie? Of his own making? Are you kidding me? You could tell that he was just like a kid in a candy store. He's like, give me more uh, bubbling skin and get me more pyrotechnics and get me a cable that I'm going to hang from a helicopter and then get me somebody who's ballsy enough to dangle from it. We're going to make a big movie. And I'm going to blow up a clown a clown van. <laughs> it doesn't all quite come together whether or not he, it, it, there were problems with editing, which there were. I mean, big the time. first editor had a freaking – his brain popped trying to please Sam Raimi. I mean, but – Raimi got the movie he wanted into theaters. I think it was bolstered quite considerably by Danny Elfman's rather evocative score to another Danny Elfman score, which was Batman. Mm -hmm. And then prior to that, or uh, after that, Dick Tracy. Batman. Darkman. Elfman. Yeah. It's, I'm noticing a theme here. That was quite a, quite a, (laughs) pardon the pun, that was quite a score for this production. Yeah, that was again. Yeah. This wasn't Danny Elfman, Oingo Boingo, Danny Elfman, like, you mean to tell me you got the guy from Oingo Boingo to make a, a Batman theme? Are you kidding? No, this was, you got Danny Elfman who just made the Batman theme? Yeah, let's rock and roll. And he did. Danny Elfman, yeah, he was dealing the same cards he he played in Tim Burton's movie, but it all works out. It makes Darkman that much more grander. It makes it feel like it's... The twisted uh, kids version of the Hunchback of Notre Dame, given shades of the shadow. Absolutely. Which is exactly what Raimi wanted to make. So, mission accomplished in that regard. Yeah, the score bolsters Mm -hmm. the uh, grandiosity of the entire affair. Or the purported grandiosity. Because when you really boil it down, (laughs) boil it like the skin. When you really boil it down, this movie wants to be more contained than it ends up being, yeah. but at the same time, it's really reaching, and you can see, especially at the end of the movie... You can see the strain. You can see that it's just gripping like you're holding on the scaffold. I know I was winded by the end of this movie. Whew. Let's break this sucker down. Let's do it. Minute by minute, not literally, because my God, this movie felt a lot longer than I remember it. I, I would 
say it's safe to say that I watched this the last time in high school, awesome. which is painfully longer ago than I wish it were. And how did it, uh, how does it wear now? How does it fit? Oh boy, I yeah. I'm a big Sam Raimi guy, mm-hmm. and this one, as as an ardent fan of the Evil Dead trilogy, this one didn't sit as well. Yeah. It definitely felt a lot more herky jerky, a little bit mean spirited in spots, sophomore, and it felt like the most Raimi movie he has ever made. Right from the, starting with his inauspicious beginning to his height of heights. Well, let's let's just dive right into this sucker. Let's go. So, open scene. We're at the docks because it's whatever. That's a superhero movie. It's and, the docks. And there's a guy who's an obvious gangster and he's like, "All right, we got this the stuff in. Great. What? You mean to tell me some dude's coming by to take my stuff? Well, let's just see about that." And sure enough, enter Durant, played Durant. by Larry Drake. I call him Durant. I don't like that they call him Durant. 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 Durant Durant. I, I'm fine with it. It's fine. Robert G. Durant. Yes. They, always with the initial, too. Like, he was Edward G. Robinson, of whom uh, Larry Drake has a passing resemblance, plus yeah. or minus 10 feet. Uh, of course, uh, Larry Drake also quite well remembered for his role as Dr. Giggles. That's right, Dr. Giggles. <laughs> it only hurts when I laugh. What's happening? Jennifer? You are dead. Don't worry, it's just a routine operation. The doctor will see you now. <laughs> so he shows up with henchmen. Yeah, henchmen. Uh, henchmen like Mullet McNunchuck. Yeah. Uh, eye patch. Who could forget eye patch? Uh, leg gun. Leg gun, my favorite. And uh, everyone else's favorite besides yours, the director's awkward brother, Ted. Yeah, and then there's Ted Raimi. With a stupid scorpion tattoo on his head. It's a very obvious temporary tattoo on his hand. They're like, hey, Ted, you gotta look tough. Go to the makeup department and just tell them to make you look tough. And they took one look at Ted <laughs> Raimi and said, look, I don't know. <laughs> Put a scorpion on his hand. You're the director's brother? All right. You look like just a perpetual <laughs> dweeb. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. But they, they show up and they're like, where's the stuff? And the guy's like, I'm not giving you the stuff. And uh, by the way, here are all my guys and they take all the equipment off and I love it when they're patting them down because the camera drops to this pavement and they're dropping the weapons they're finding on the dudes and sure enough nunchucks are everywhere and like brass knucks shurikens <laughs> and like uh, uh, maybe a gun oh no there's a bunch of different kinds of guns well, I swear there was did, a squirt gun too why did leg gun need a leg gun why didn't he just have a regular gun because he had to sneak it in oh I see he happens this is the thing mm-hmm. word of advice okay. if you ever lose a limb the first thing you should do is go into organized crime. Yeah. Because every mob boss needs a henchman with a false limb that you can hide a weapon in. Yeah, because you're always going to get that pat down invariably. The best joke of the movie from a uh, mob guy that Durant's facing down, he says, I used to date a girl with one leg. Hey, what happened? I had to break it off. Oh, it was the worst. The guy, after giving that very uh, charming uh, joke, he decides to throw an ultimatum to Durant, and Durant ain't having it. So everyone starts dying left and right, and then it all culminates with the only person left standing is Durant and his dudes, and uh, Eddie Black. Eddie Black. And uh, Durant begins to show shades of his mania. We don't see too much of it in the movie, it turns out, but there is one little quirk that he has as he lights his cigarette. He shears the bottom with the uh, snip snip thing 
And then he decides to put Eddie Black's finger in it, and he says, I got ten reasons why you're going to give me this stuff. Here's one. Oh, and he, and he puts another finger in it. Snip. Here's two. And he starts going down all these fingers, and he goes, best part, I got seven more reasons. And it's like, yeah, they just kind of move his fingers down <laughs> and off camera a little bit, so it looks like his fingers just cut off. And Eddie Black's taking it like a champ. He's like, oh, ah, oh, I, I winced harder with every snip. Yeah. Well, that's because... Larry Drake was selling it. He was just like, I'm just going to take this, see? I want to take that one, too, see? He's got a nice finger collection. That's right. So you cut to the title card, and Danny Elfman's score is just doing everything it can to not be the Batman score, but it gets us through an awesome title sequence. Absolutely. Which later is revealed to be just a cut-together montage of all of Liam Neeson's, like... Hallucinations. Yeah, hallucinations, but more on that in a minute. Uh, we go, speaking of whom, Mr. Neesom's, uh is 3D printing human skin. Yeah, but... Presaging problem... actual science, which is pretty awesome. Problem is, that shit melts. Yeah, almost immediately. Uh, 99 minutes later. Yeah, it, although the nose melts, like, that minute. That's, well, yeah, we, we got there at, at 98.58. This movie has a very tenuous grip on time. I guess we'll discuss that <laughs> a little more as we go along. That's being nice about it. Yeah, but... Uh, he he's like all pissed off. He's like, "Why can't we uh, make the skin feel great again?" And then like uh, he we, says, "He says, why can't we make the skin stable?" Well, while this nose is melting into a petri dish, by the way, he's gonna have a little snacky lunch and and wonder about how they can make skin last for longer. So he's like, "You know what? Fuck this! I'm going home to hang out with my girlfriend, who is Frances McDormand of all people. Of all I people, completely forgot that Frances McDormand was in this movie, and I was like, oh shit, there she is." And uh, decides to solicit sex with the words, let's dance. Yeah. You know, they uh, originally considered Bridget Fonda, but Sam Raimi thought she looked, she was too young. Frances McDormand won my heart in that movie. And she's won my heart in plenty of other movies, like Fargo. Oh, I thought of she was awesome in that movie. She was just kind of charmless in this. Yeah. I can't, I, I guess her and Raimi didn't get along very well. That's true. He didn't have a real great way of getting her to get the performance that he needed. Sam Raimi was like, oh, no, I need you to do this. Yeah. She was like, eat a dick. Because yeah, like, here is theater trained method actor Francis McDormand. And he's like, you got to be the damsel in distress. And she's like, the fuck, get, the, get this Raimi off my back. That's right. Anyway, so they, I guess they danced. It goes by quickly, thank God, because I did not want to see those two rolling around in the hay. Frances McDormand, who is played, uh, plays the character Julie, the attorney, wakes up and she's going through her briefs. Or, Thankfully uh, not going through his briefs. Yeah. Hey-oh. Yeah, that's funny. That's not funny. That's not... <laughs> and she comes up with... The MacGuffin of the ser uh, of the movie, the uh, Belisarius Memorandum, Memorandum, <laughs> which <laughs> Liam Neeson then, like an idiot, puts coffee on and leaves a little stain because the man doesn't appreciate Julia's work. Obviously, he visibly doesn't give a shit about what she does day in and day out. Otherwise, he would not have put the fucking coffee on her briefs. All he cares about is skin. She gets mad at him. She's like, look, I gotta go. She's so flustered uh, that she leaves the Belisarius Memorandum on his bed. Which happens to be in his laboratory. More on that in a minute. And, of course, he feels bad and he chases her out to the street. And while she's hustling to get a cab to get to work, he's like, oh, I really think that we ought to get married. She says no, not because they've only been dating for a brief period of time, which they make it very clear that they were uh, later on in the film. But because, dude, you're broaching marriage like you would ordering a salad in the middle of the street. 
There's love waiting. There's love Give there. Give it time. Let it grow. Let her go to work. Yeah. Let it blossom. Go work on your skin. Yeah, you've got work to do, too. I have to... They never touch on this in the movie. But I get the feeling that she was paying for a lot of those dates. She's the attorney. He's the doctor. But his work isn't meriting anything. He's obviously not working in the public sector. He's getting grants for this shit. And it's not meriting any fruit. So I guarantee you, he's going to bat every you know fiscal year to like knock out a new grant proposal. And everyone's like, oh, this fucking guy again. He fucks off back to his lair. He lets her go to work eventually. Eventually, because... Movie has to progress because at the next sequence, Julie has to go talk to her boss or client or whatever. I, I'm still fuzzy on that. Hmm. The guy, the guy in the suit, the business, the evil businessman that you would spot a mile away in a Paul Verhoeven movie. He's a billionaire who's like developing a lot of stuff. I guess Julie is his attorney. Anyway, she comes across the Belarus thing, whatever we call it, the Belladonna. <laughs> the Bellagio, the Bellagio Memoruni. And, and he's like, oh, it's a shame he found that. That's a real big shame that you found that because I'm trying to build some jobs over here. You look at this uh, really elaborate uh, cityscape that I had somebody build for my office. I'm trying to turn this place uh, from the docks into the decks. And it'd be too bad if maybe my guy, Mr. Durant, were to uh, maybe do something about those documents. If you uh, are picking up what I'm putting down rather uh, obliquely. I've been going over some documents and I've come across something that puzzles me. It's a memo from your office to a Mr. Claude Belisarius. It details certain payments that... Yes, yes, I know the memo. Well, it seems like the payments were... The payouts, the zoning commission, bribes, they call it spade, spade. Does that shock you? No, I guessed as much. You weren't supposed to know about it. That file is not supposed to circulate. However... I am asking you to understand. Take a look at that model, Julie. That's the dream. Acres of riverfront reclaimed from decay. Thousands of jobs created. A building block. A very large building block laid for the future. Not such a bad dream as dreams go. And if the price of realizing that dream is the occasional distasteful chore, well, I don't run away. I say, so be it. Marcelo, want to book me? What is the Belarus papers anyway? Uh, what did they reveal? That there was some payola going on? That, that they paid off uh, members of the zoning board to... Uh, convert. Mm. I'm guessing to convert land from one use to another yeah. use, stuff like that. Because that shit never happens ever. Like they they really take a minute to get to the meat of the Belladonna. Uh, what's its and and the it, Bella Lugosi macaroni. And none of it really matters. No. All. But apparently her life is at stake. And while they're having the conversation, Durant already knows about the um, Blissarius memorandum. So he goes to the lab where he's checking on the cells and the lights go out. I guess that's because Durant and his guys pulled the cord or something. And he finds out that that's the secret to keeping skin last longer. You got to grow it in the dark and then it'll last for... Which this is why it doesn't make sense. Yeah, because this doesn't come up again. Because he never operates in the shadow of night. No. As you would think he would yeah. once he discovers his magic skin will work at night. 
Then he proceeds to do everything an hour and a half at a time during In the day. broad daylight. Exactly. Yeah. He's actually supposed to be Daylight Man. <laughs> daylight Man. Before he comes to like any sort of like crucial breakthrough, he's like, oh, we need to grow it at, at night. Yeah, here comes Durant and his goons and Ted Raimi. The poor dummy doesn't know that the Belarus papers are in his lab and all of a sudden... He gets a know, mean shot to the nose. Oh, they, he gets fucked up. They fuck him up. I haven't seen anything like it. They beat him up unnecessarily. Like, it's almost comical. No foolish heroics, if you please. We've come only for documents. Tell us where to find the Belisarius Memorandum and we shall disappear. Like a nightmare before the breaking day. I don't know what you're talking about. Unfortunate. What memorandum? Punch you a lot, and then we're going to jam your face through a lot of glass, and then we're going to jam your face into some acid, and then I suppose for good measure, we're going to kick you, and then... While, you, and while we have you conscious, we're going to take your friendly lab assistant, who is just getting paid like five bucks an hour and plus college credit, we're going to put a bag over his head, and when you ask Beg to let him breathe, mm -hmm. Sam Raimi is going to shoot a gun in his face. Head Raimi. Ted Raimi. Ted Raimi. But it was Sam's idea, you know that. Yeah. So Neesom uh, watches his lab assistant die, and then as Frances McDormand, Julie, is making her way back to his uh, lab outside, trying to warn him, he dies above a Java cafe, which I guess they couldn't get the rights to coffee coffee. That's true. Yeah, it That's says true. Java cafe, there's his lab, everything explodes. People who at Java Cafe have no job to go to the next day. They are out of work. Liam Neeson had no friends in this movie. No friends. Because Oh, she, he had one friend, and he's shot in the face. Right, so that means only she, Julie, can show up to the funeral. The priest is there, and he's like, I don't know. You want me to say something? There you go. Well, it's, and it's a funeral for his ear. Let's be honest. Yeah, because they don't find anything of him. No, because as he, we, the viewers, see, his body gets straight up exploded into mm -hmm. the air. Like uh, Die Hard 2, where like Bruce Willie gets blown up straight into the sky on that chair. That's mm -hmm. what it reminded me of. Yeah, well, of course it's like daylight, because he's daylight man. He's daylight man. But then he crashes In the into most... the lake that's right next to Java Coffee that we didn't see the first time, or the second time. But or we the... know he's near the docks. It's horseshit. You want to know why it's horseshit? Because when he tries to propose marriage to her, Liam Neeson and Frances McDormand are walking towards the camera, and if we look behind them, you will see that there are miles of road behind them with all these buildings and such. There is no damn water. And when Liam Neeson gets blown out of that building, guess what happens? He gets shot off to the right. And you know what happens over in the right? More street. No damn lake. No damn river. No damn water. And yet... He makes it in there. So, and yeah. so we cut to a laboratory where Neeson's body has been found. He's bandaged and he is now being taken care of on the city's dime, I guess. And here's a fun fact. Sam Raimi's co-writing brother, Ivan, is an actual medical doctor. Oh, yeah. And he, oh, did he regale us with his medical expertise for this bit of bullshit. As in many radical procedures, there are serious side effects to this operation. When the body ceases to feel, when so much sensory input is lost, the mind grows hungry. Starved of its uh, regular diet of input, it takes the only remaining stimulation it has, the emotions, and 
amplifies them, giving rise to alienation, loneliness, uncontrolled rage is not uncommon. Now surges of adrenaline flow unchecked through the body and brain, giving him augmented strength. At this point, we get a brief period of uh, what I like to call Sam Raimi's The Mummy. Mm-hmm. Where he's wrapped in toilet paper and he just kind of meanders around town. Here's the funny thing. Is that when he escapes the hospital, you know that bit where the cold, code blue sounds like a damn torpedo mm-hmm. alarm? Uh, Neesums finds a tarp in the garbage that is his size. A garbage tarp. A garbage tarp that is his size. It's not even a tarp, it's a trench coat. But it's, it's, a, it's a cloak. Because it's a noir, it's noir city, see? And gangsters just throw that old trench coats in the garbage can all the time, willy-nilly, see? And so that's how he found it. And there he goes and creeps on Julie. Well, the thing is... Julie ain't having whatever this is. He he can't even get words out at this moment because he hasn't learned how to speak with no lips, I guess. And so she runs off in terror. And so he's forced to sleep on the outside, raining, sleeping right next to a twirling drain, which is Sam Raimi's little, uh, uh, really feeble attempt at a metaphor. Yeah, that's true. And when you watch this metaphor, you don't realize, but the camera is pushing it through the, the whirlpool. Yeah, And then he juxtaposes that shot over Neeson's eye, which is also going forward. So we are going into his mind now, which I have a fun little fan theory that I developed just now. That at that moment, we are now, for the rest of the movie, in Liam Neeson's brain. He died in that alleyway, drowning in rain and uh, And drowning also in pain. This is his his deathbed Mm -hmm. hallucination. Yeah, this is the last thing he thought before his brain... Suffered entropy. Yeah, that's a good idea, actually. Uh, I buy that. I would prefer the movie more. It would be more poetic if that had been the case. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to pretend that that is the case. Have a good cry when we're done with this recording. And then just go on loving Dead Man or Dark Man (laughs) like I used to. But uh, continuing on. So, yeah, there's got to be some plot in here somewhere. Uh, So Neeson's is hideous. His lab's destroyed. His girl hates him. So he fucks off to an abandoned whatever to set up a base of operations. And he extrapolates the quadrants. And builds himself a damn face, but problem is that face is going to take a 571 days or hours. How long is 571 hours? Uh, 24 days, 20, almost a month. So he flips out about losing his hands, but he's <laughs> still got his hands. Like that's what's been lifting and building all this shit. They took my hands. Yeah, they took. They're right there. Ooh, they took my hands. Seriously, on either side of your head right now. My hands. They took. They took my hands. He's gonna get hungry eventually, and he'll see where those hands went. And he's gonna eat that cat. Yeah, I would. I would eat that cat. That would have been day one. A plump, juicy cat. Now, before we continue on with the last half of the film, we have to play a little game, Bird. Oh, I'm excited about this game. Now, this game, I uh, spent exactly five minutes on, but I think that you're going to find it a little challenging. Are you prepared? I am as ready as spaghetti. This this game is called Name That Raimi. I got you. I'm going to read you a very stripped-down synopsis of one, two, three, four, five, six of his films, and you've got to guess which one it is. All right, I can do it. All right. First one. A girl works at a bank. She screws over an old lady because that's what bankers do. A girl works at a bank? Uh, it is uh, Drag Me to Hell. Yes. Very good. Very good. 
Alright, next one. A guy meets three people who put the screws on him to see if he's fit to become the boss of all the town. Boss of all the town? Three things. Boss of all the town. Is this uh, Oz Great and Powerful? It is! Anyway. I'm telling you, I'm a Raimi guy. Yeah, you are. Alright, this one's hard. A dude takes forever to return an overdue book. Uh, ooh. Oh, uh, that's Army of Darkness. Yeah! Obviously. Yeah! Guy gets broken up by his girlfriend, decides he'll take up a career in impromptu show tunes. Impromptu show tunes. Ooh! <laughs> oh boy, this, uh, this one is... Mmm, I got nothing. Spider-Man 3. Oh, God, of yeah. course it is. Yeah, come on, oh, Of man. course it's Spider-Man 3. Come on. <laughs> All right, two more. You ready? Yes. All right. Three people get rich without trying. That's uh, a simple plan. Yes. And then finally, a man stands on top of a heap of dirt and thinks about his damn life. Yep, that's for the love of the game. Okay, bird. awesome, Bird. You got them all except for one. That's pretty good. Yeah, you did a damn good job. I tip my hat to you. I tip my Raimi hat. Absolutely. Tip your Darkman fedora. Yes, absolutely. Now we have a time frame where we're supposed to uh, view this movie. 24 days of him learning how to live like this. And Raimi makes an attempt at this. Like, he, he creeps on Julie, who's been living relatively well, considering that her would-be fiancé was murdered by... An explosion. ...by Dr. Giggles. And her dingus boss is still hassling her about the Belisarius Memorandum. At least one week passed since he died. At least one. And a week later, he's still like... Are you sure you're good about this memorandum? Yeah, he's just like, let's go dance. And we all know that's code code for... For fucking. For fucking. And that's, I mean, that's supposed to be, in any sensible movie, the dance is supposed to be uh, an implication that these two are going to be going down on each other very shortly. Meanwhile, Liam Neeson's staring off through a window, and he spots Durant, who I guess the billionaire hires his henchman to hang out at the dance... Or fundraiser, whatever the fuck it is. There's a dance at the fundraiser. Yeah. And Ted Raimi's there. Yeah, well, all the goons. All the goons. Because they, everyone wants a nice, free, fancy meal. Mm -hmm. Especially after, hey, you know, we just exploded this guy for you. Yeah. Where's my spaghetti? Yeah. And they got all the free spaghetti. Because Ted Raimi is stuffing his face so much, Durant actually offers to get him a martini. You uh, like a martini? Yes. Durant's the leader of this crew, and he's getting his henchmen martinis. He's a nice guy. I mean, he appreciates his help. He, he appreciates a lot of things. We see his house later. It's a nice house. He's wearing like an apron while he curates his little finger collection. Part of me gets this guy. Yeah, he, I mean, he, he's a sadistic, psychopathic uh, murderer. Yeah. But he's got taste. He's got, he's got exquisite taste. For fingers. For fingers. Uh, Neeson's eyeballs Durant. And the rest of his goons. And, and the rest of his goons. And starts having flashbacks to the night that he died. He's tripping. Uh, oh, he's tripping. And so he decides that he's going to do something about this right now because he's got this rage in him. I guess the movie cuts to later because the next scene is Ted Raimi walking alone in an alleyway. I guess he's pretending to be drunk because he's all like this. Yeah, he had that one martini. And then he snatches up Ted Raimi, who has to weigh like maybe 10 pounds soaking wet, takes him down to the sewer and sticks his head in water for a minute. Ow! And then when that... When he's done 
torturing him with sewer water. He sticks his head out of a manhole grate, and he eventually, it takes a minute, but eventually gets hit by a truck. Oh, God. That was one of my favorite mo- uh, parts of this movie, is the, uh, the fa- Ted, 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 Ted Remy whack-a-mole. <laughs> and see, it's moments like this, uh, and there are, are several moments like this, that make it feel, like I said, like the most Raimi movie possible. Yeah. It's moments that you get from Army of Darkness and Evil Dead 2, mm-hmm. the all the slapsticky Sam Raimi loves the Three Stooges stuff. He's trying to create these iconic comedic horror imageries, and they're just so out of place. It's a fake Ted Raimi doll <laughs> for a minute. A couple of shots, they're fake. Oh, absolutely. Because he's much skinnier than Ted Raimi actually is somehow at this point in his life. <laughs> But, it just looks like he's covered in ketchup. And then, oh God, I really... See, this movie is so close to being a trauma movie, it's ridiculous. Had had Raimi just pitched this thing to Lloyd Kaufman, he wouldn't have gotten the budget he wanted, but he would have gotten the freedom he wanted. Dark Man could have very well have been trauma's biggest hit ever. Yeah, really, it, it rides that line between doesn't want to be a trauma movie, doesn't want to be a Hollywood blockbuster... And it's in that weird middle ground. It's that a nebulous it ground. Doesn't need to be in. It, it doesn't at all. Like it should either be one or the other. It could be an operatic, like crazy trench coat in the shadows, noirish superhero movie in the vein of like The Shadow or Tim Burton's Batman, or or it can be a balls to the wall, goofy adventure full of blood and guts and gore and silliness. Yeah, like Toxic Avenger or Sergeant Kabuki Man. Yeah. I was thinking about both these movies when I was watching uh, Dark Man today. I was like, holy cow, the parallels are so evident here. I mean, you're pretty much hit- checking all the boxes of like you know generic superhero-dom with these movies, mm-hmm. and all three of them do. So I guess it's easy to draw those parallels, but at the same time, aesthetically, it's there. It's Absolutely. Right there. So what happens next? So he feels good about killing all these people, and... Uh, Decides uh, he's going to uh, ghost everyone else by taking pictures with a Nikon camera. They don't say where he gets this Nikon camera. It, I guess it doesn't matter. It looks nice. It that looks, looks new. It looks kind of new. He knows exactly where to find the other members of Durant's crew somehow. Yeah, because they're Ernie's. And he snaps pictures of them and he uses the pictures to map all their faces and make fake faces of them all. Uh, he decides to go after Polly first, the fat bald one, mm-hmm. who is much shorter than Liam Neeson, but you let it go. So he replaces the fat bald one by knocking him out. Chloroform. Out, chloroform. And then uh, meets up with the other henchmen. He takes Durant's money from them and then leaves actual Polly to die by Durant's hand. And then he goes outside and waits for the whole thing to come to a head. All <laughs> within the confines of 99 minutes. That's true. And when things do come to a head, that's when his head starts bubbling. Exactly. Neeson's has a damn mental breakdown in front of a pissed off cat. He starts flipping off on everybody before he uh, enacts his plan of revenge against Durant. Uh, Oscar nominee Liam Neeson's gets his face back, goes to visit Julie at his own grave, which probably wasn't the best idea contextually. Julie understandably flips out. He tries to console her, succeeds, and then uh, they decide to go get a nice cup of water and talk things through. Um, at this point, Liam Neeson really sounds like Christopher Lloyd. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. And he also, every time Liam Neeson is wearing his Liam Neeson mask, mm-hmm. he looks the perfect amount of uncanny. Yeah, it's there. Neeson's at this point tells Julie that they can't hang because reasons, because he's got to see a doctor, and the doctor says he doesn't need to be back Don't have in a society girlfriend. yet. Exactly. So uh, he fucks off for a while, decides to enact his plan of revenge against Sorrent. Now, this is where the film's relationship with time gets really stupid. So here's what happens. Within the course of 99 minutes, 
Durant talks on the phone about things, reveals that he collects fucking fingers. Then Neesoms records the conversation and makes Durant's face, frames him for the robbery of a store, has him arrested, goes to Chinatown to fuck up one of his deals. Durant makes bail, rushes over to Neesoms' squirrely deal, gets into a fist fight with Liam's Neesoms, who, by the way, makes off all of Durant's cash, and then his face falls off, all within the confines of 99 minutes. Yep, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. Perfect well, sense. So let's just cut to the damn fun fair then, where Neesums and Julie Frolic and play, and this is where the movie gets really fucking This weird. is when the movie goes off the rails. Neesums uh, tries to level with her when they come across a freak show where people are making fun with the freak, and Neesums is starting to feel pains of pity, but also hostile resentment, and he's like, uh, I gotta go, but before I go, I'm gonna win you a pink thing. Uh, the pink elephant, please. I'm sorry, buddy, it don't count unless you're behind the line. What? I was behind the line. Not hard. <laughs> I was standing right here with my girlfriend. Now, the pink elephant, if you please. No way. And so he, like, throws a baseball at one of those heavy bottles. Yeah. And fucks him up. Knocks him right to the ground. And he's like, all right, give me the pink thing. And the carny's like, fuck you. Yeah, you're over the line. You don't get nothing. He's like, what are you talking about? Standing right here. He's like, nah, go on. Get out of here. Ever present in the background mm -hmm. is Liam Neeson's trigger word. Freak. Yeah, exactly. So the second he hears Freak for the final time, he really spazzes out, breaks the Carney's fingers, and the film's only act of actual gruesome, like, violence. It looked like a Stretch Armstrong doll. It did, but it was effective. I went, ah! And then he throws him through a wall, and then he goes, I gotta go, here's your pink thing. <laughs> and, uh, His face starts melting, and he's just running and crying. <laughs> it's really bad. So uh, she follows him back. Julie follows him, because he's just... He, I guess she followed his trail of tears because he's sobbing the entire way. Maybe it was a trail of uh, right. melting skin. Yeah, exactly. She sees what he's become, and she tries to appeal to him, but he's lurking in the shadows and he won't come out. This is where the Hunchback of Notre Dame uh, parallels really come into play, uh, which I appreciated, and it could have been a better scene. You could tell Frances McDormand was trying, bless her, but not in this movie. So Julie goes back to her boss or whatever and says that she ain't going to give him no more oh, some side. You know, none of that's going to happen anymore. Her main, her main hog is alive and unwell. And so he, he decides that he's got to take a call right at this moment. And Julie is like, oh, I guess I'll just go through his desk paper. Oh, my God. The, the first paper she finds is, what is it, Bird? It's the Belarusian magazine. Yeah, exactly. With the coffee stain and everything. This dude hasn't destroyed this one piece of paper which could topple his entire empire. Dun, dun, dun. How stupid is this guy? We find out how stupid later. But first, what he does is he catches her looking at his shit and he goes, well, you know what? Guess we gotta sick the rant on you. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't in that moment. He lets Julie uh, run off because he knows that if he puts Durant on her trail, she will lead him directly to... Burtman. Burtman, which would have been a more fitting name. He he sits back and sips on his Napoleon brandy. Durant goes to try to kill uh, Julian Neesoms. With, like, a fucking small army. Seriously, this gunfight is absurd. And, and Neesoms kills Durant's henchmen, like, with their own skin faces. <laughs> like, it's, it's absurd. Um, and yeah. that... Then there's the greatest helicopter chase in the history of helicopter chases. This Absolutely. thing goes on forever. Raimi really employs this $68 million budget he had. Helicopters racing through the sky. The cops are like, pull that thing over. And Durant's like, you see what's going on here? I've got a giant gun. I'm going to destroy you. You are literally the furthest thing from my mind right now. Also, grenade launcher. Boom. Anyway, Durant dies. Oh, by the way, by the time Durant dies, it is broad daylight. This whole shit went down in broad daylight. There are not swarms of police everywhere. 
No one's panicking in the streets. Can you imagine if you did this in Grand mm -hmm. Theft Auto? This is five stars. Yeah, this is five stars of Grand Theft Auto, and everyone's losing their shit. There's explosions left and right. There's uh, news helicopters, police helicopters, and all eyes are on you. But instead, Neeson uses the time to change into Durant. Because apparently he's <laughs> just got, in his cloak, he's just got a bunch of backup faces. Well, I mean, that's how you know, Dana Carvey did it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, Master of Disguise. Anyway, so he goes to meet uh, Julie's boss or boyfriend or whatever the hell he's supposed to be. And, boss uh, friend. And he's got his, a gun on Julie and he, he takes her up uh, one of his high rises that he's trying to construct that, I guess, bribe people to build because they don't want billionaires to create jobs for people. Because know. movie. Because movie. And he brags about, you know, working on the high rise so that explains why he could just bounce around. He's formidable all of a sudden as opposed to some asshole who sips brandy on top of a building. Anyway, and he talks about how he killed his first wife, and how he uh, doesn't vote ever, and how he kills puppies, and how he sticks his fingers uh, in other people's food, just so you really hate him by the end of this movie? This is the longest, I, I called this, the villainous monologuing and the conveniently placed ending. It, it really sets itself up. It's for so its own end. long. Yeah, exactly. It never, feels like it's never gonna end. And it doesn't have that catharsis where we see him plunge to his death and fall on a rack of nails. We don't see it. We just see him fall. We see him awkwardly fall in a manner in which he wouldn't have. And that's the end. And so what we're watching right now is Sam Raimi ostensibly do a dry run for the finale of Spider-Man 3. Mm -hmm. Because I was thinking about it and like these two things sync up almost identically. It's all in like this, you know, abandoned construction high rise where, you know, the hero has to take on two really bad villains while the love of his life is in peril constantly, so he's got a balance between fighting them and saving her and can't decide which is more important, and they two, they converge and then they diverge, and then it amounts to she being okay, two villains are both uh, dead or gone, and him swinging off to whatever future awaits him. And that's pretty much the movie. That is. Yeah. I'm Dark Man. Sam Raimi's like, well, okay. I guess that's enough. Is that enough? That's enough. And he wraps up the movie nice and tidy. Danny Elfman rolls the score one more time. Everyone gets paid. And everyone agrees never to talk about it again. But Universal and their infinite wisdom and their infinite desire to make money decided to make, you're right, two sequels of this motherfucker. I think one starred Jeff Fahey. One starred Jeff Fahey as the villain. Mm -hmm. uh, the other was The Return of Durant. Yeah. Here's a fun fact. Oh. The actor who played Darkman in those two movies. Uh-huh. You remember The Mummy? Of course. The Mummy Returns. Oh, come on. Uh, I don't know the actor's name because it's hard to say, uh -huh. but he, uh, the actor who played Imhotep, Arnold Vosloo. Arnold Vosloo, is that so? Imhotep. Oh, okay. Dark, Dark Man. Man. Why not? I mean, to be honest, Liam Neeson went on to play Jacob Sch or Schindler. Jacob Schindler? I don't remember his name. It's now. Oscar Schindler, Oscar, you monster. Oscar Schindler. <laughs> and... You know, uh, Dad Punches Wolves. Yeah, Dad Punches Wolves, the great, which was the film we were going to do today. Until we decided maybe it would be more fun to watch Dark Man. I'm not sure how that actually worked Whose out. Whose idea was that? That was mine. Can I blame you for that? Yeah, this one's me. Yeah, but I co-signed. Yeah, you did. You did. Sam Raimi, hell of a director. You blew it, buddy. I love you, buddy, but you blew it. Hey, at least we got to see Liam Neeson do a silly dance uh, wearing a t uh, funnel as a top that hat. Made the whole thing worth it. What am I? Some kind of a circus freak? Is that it? Is that it? Some kind of a freak? Maybe I should be wearing a funny little hat. Do you like it? Yeah? Yeah? Pay the dancing freak. Pay 
That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for listening to the Anti-Monitor Podcast. Look us up on iTunes. Rate and subscribe when you get a chance. If you haven't already, let us know how we're doing. Also, look us up on Twitter. You can find me at Jared Jones underscore. Birdie, where can they find you? I am at BirdMoney on all platforms. Thank you, Bird. That's all the time we've got from all of us here at DoomRocket.com. Call me Dark